We are back for another week in the world of Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings. I would love to see you behind the scenes on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. And there you can even submit questions for future guests coming on the show. But to the show today, and I'm very excited, we've spent many weeks on the operational side of the table. And today we return to the enterprise investor side as we welcome Chetan Puttagunta, general partner at NEA, one of the world's largest venture capital firms with over $3 billion in their latest fund and a portfolio including the likes of MuleSoft, Jet.com, Uber. Uber, House, and many more incredible companies. As for Chathan, Chathan focuses on enterprise software and has made investments in MuleSoft, MongoDB, Elastic, and Heap, just to name a few. And due to his phenomenal track record, Chathan has been named to GrowthCap's top 40 under 40 growth investors, Forbes's 30 under 30 all-star alumni list, and Forbes's 30 under 30 in venture capital. I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Heap's Matan Movaset and MuleSoft's Ross Mason for the intro to Chathan today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But before before we dive into the show today, let me tell you about Full Contact, the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform for professionals, teams, and businesses who want to master their contacts and create authentic connections, allowing you to merge contact information across your address books into a single source of truth while automatically identifying and merging duplicate contacts. They also keep all your contacts up to date with public data, including photos, jobs, and social profiles, and keep them organized, synchronized, and up-to-date and safe, able to scan business cards and automatically capture signatures from Gmail. These and many more features have made Full Contact an essential app for people-focused professionals, including many VCs. And to download this app, simply check out Full Contact on the Apple App Store, Google Play Store, or online at fullcontact.com. And speaking of awesome products you need in your life, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce to you another very cool player in SaaS, Zoho. Now, Zoho is the platform that offers you a wide range of productivity tools and applications for businesses with tools for sales and marketing finance, email and collaboration, and more. It's become the operating system for more than 25 million small businesses around the world. And you can learn more at Zoho.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Zoho did, visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started and running with platform payments. And you can get that at WePay.com forward slash Sasta. But that's quite enough from me. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome Chetan Puttagunta, general partner at NEA. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Chathan, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to pie, I guess, Matan Movaset at a heap for the intro. But thank you so much for joining me today, Chathan. Well, Harry, thank you so much for having me. The show that you've built here and the following you've built is truly remarkable. And I'm personally a big fan. Well, that is very, very kind. And what better way to butter me up for the interview? But let's kick off today <laughs> with a little bit about you and how you made your way into the world of SaaS investing with NEA. Let's start with that. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's a similar story to a number of your other guests, which is that I've always had an interest in technology. And, you know, I was an engineer in undergrad, Stanford, here in the Valley, and met the NEA folks really starting around 2009 and got to know them over a couple of years and, and joined in 2011, primarily to see how it can bring value to the firm. So it was a very organic process. Absolutely. And from MongoDB to MuleSoft, you've more than delivered value to the fund on that. 
that front, but I want to start today by breaking the interview up into a couple of different segments. I want to start on the rise of open source, then move to all things market sizing, and then finish on fundraising. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. So the rise of open source, unprecedented rise of VC funding towards open source projects. And you said to me before that it's the best way to build next-gen infrastructure software. So I want to start on that. And why do you have such conviction with regards to open source companies today? Yeah, look, that's a great question. I think that, you know, when I started in venture capital in 2011, the big question that venture capitalists had around open source was, could you really build multi-billion dollar or multi-hundred million dollar revenue companies with open source technology? You know, there was a company there called Red Hat, of course, but, you know, there hadn't been examples beyond Red Hat. MySQL got taken out, Spring Source got taken out. So there were all these great acquisitions, but never these great big standalone companies. Fast forward to 2018, and like you said, there are a number of public companies now that have been built on open source. And if you just look at how the modern developer approaches problems, they are focused on agility and the ability to try solutions out very, very quickly. And the only way, I believe, to get in front of them and to get at the point when the developer is starting to solve a problem is having open source technology out there. I think proprietary products, even if you have it in a free way or in a distribution where, where you can somebody can download and try it, I think it's still not as attractive as a developer going on GitHub and seeing an open source project and pulling it down, pulling that repository down and just playing with it. I think that ease of use that we often associate with consumer products has become extraordinarily important in the world of development. And I think the only way you can reach the vast majority of developers today is to be open source. Can I ask, is this a fundamental shift in the buying decision and trial, uh, not trial, but kind of pathway to buying decision in the way that developers interact with product? Yeah, I think it's changed over time, right? I think that if you just go back 20 years or even 30 years, a lot of architecture decisions were made top down and you were building monolithic apps and there was some head of engineering or a CIO making these architectural decisions. And so it made a lot of sense to build enterprise companies where you're selling directly to that CIO. Well, today, I think we live in a world where everything is coming bottoms up. And so you have individual developers, even amongst the largest enterprises, working hard to build better product. And they want to do it fast. And Harry, I think it's something that we would all agree with. If you can do something faster, cheaper, and better, you would definitely do that. And then, you know, with the advent of agile development and lean teams and scrum and all of these management techniques where you're decentralizing management and enabling people to, to really shine. This bottoms-up approach is the way to do it. And yeah, it's, it's something that's really become mainstream more recently, but I think this is a trend that's here to stay. And you mentioned earlier the ability to kind of really build those mega businesses in the space. And so going one layer deeper into the business model itself, we've got the likes of Red Hat with 85% gross margin and then Horton Works with a negative gross margin. I'm intrigued, how do you think about the underlying business models and monetization strategies inherent within open source? Yeah, I mean, as with any software category, you're going to have a quite a big difference in business models. And you're absolutely right. I think that Red Hat, who's been an established player for a long time, has a very high gross margin and a very steady gross margin profile. I think if you look at companies like MuleSoft or Mongo, you know, they also have really strong gross margins. And like you mentioned, Hortonworks is, I think, probably very early in its development lifecycle in terms of where they eventually end up with their monetization strategy. And I think that over time, you'll see that evolve. Obviously, I don't know the intimate details of Hortonworks because that was not an investment we were involved in, but broadly in open source, you invest a lot upfront into the open source project and you get a lot of developer 
adoption. That's what you want to, that's what you hope for. And once that starts happening, then you can really start investigating your monetization models. Like, am I going to provide this open source product as a service and sell it like a SaaS? Am I going to provide this on premise where large enterprises are going to be able to manage and use this open source product in production? That's more of an on-prem term license business model. There are also those that want to start in professional services and then transition to some kind of SaaS or term license business model. So there's a lot of different ways to approach it. But I think over time, the jury comes down to, are you able to build a sustaining business over time that eventually becomes profitable? And I think first, of course, you have to become cash flow positive and then you become profitable. And so I think that's the long-term test for all these businesses. In terms of kind of cash flow positive and profitability, we're seeing more and more focus from VCs and the VC class on kind of capital efficiency today. How do you think about that and the right time to really start kind of engaging with that as a core priority? Yeah, I think obviously at a company level, there's no need to do that at the early stages of company development. But certainly on a unit and a customer level, that's something that, you know, we as a firm really encourage entrepreneurs to pay attention from the very, very early days. You know, you can look at customer unit economics as soon as you start engaging whatever your customer base is. And you can start looking at things like how much did this customer cost to acquire? How have they been ramping revenues? What's my churn rate? What's my expansion rate? What's my upsell rate? What's my days to close? How are they engaging with the product? How are they using the product? How is the product itself spreading? Is the open source deployment model ahead of our pricing model or am I having to do both in parallel? So these like unit economics and unit level understanding of these businesses is very critically important and it's something that you have to pay attention to from the very start because to punt on the problem and say we'll fix it when we get to 100 million much much harder yeah, absolutely i'm intrigued where do you see from your experience and kind of portfolio of past successes where do you see most people having challenges in really kind of engaging with this metric centered kind of capital efficiency so to speak yeah i think that entrepreneurs are naturally optimistic people right and the hope is that given enough time that a customer will eventually become profitable will eventually become a good business for you to serve. I think that ahead of time, setting those goals and time limits to say, we're going to see results in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, right? Being able to set milestones for yourself and your team is critically important because that's how you can stay intellectually honest. And when things are going better than expectation, obviously that's something that you can learn from and then take that and start developing a real playbook. When things are going worse than expected, you're able to dig in and really understand what's going wrong. I think what really is a mistake is having these ever-moving goalposts. Every three months, you move the goalposts further out, so you're never able to have that hard, intellectually honest discussion to really dig in and say, are things going well or are things off track? Can I ask, we mentioned kind of that or kind of uh, slightly touched on the element of payback period. When analyzing open source projects, what's a healthy and exciting payback period for you investing? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends, right? I've invested in open source projects very, very early on where it was just only open source and there was no monetization. In those cases, we figure it out as we develop a thesis or a hypothesis on how monetization works. Obviously, if you're going to go for a high-end enterprise monetization model, the payback period is going to be much longer. But what makes it all worth it is that the initial ticket sizes are much larger. And so you can have a long payback period if the initial ticket size is very large and you know that customer is not churning and you know that the customer lifetime is going to be 
for quite some time and you know that in year two they're going to expand by 20, 25, 50%, for example. On the other hand, we, we've also had experiences of monetization models where you go after, you know, the SMB segment where the ticket sizes are in the 2000 to $5,000 per year ticket size. And you want those to pay back much faster because otherwise the company business model just won't ever, even at scale, it's very hard to get it to be cash flow positive. And so it really depends on the ticket size that you're going after. Speaking of kind of the ticket sizes and the models themselves, sorry, I spoke to Andy, uh, founder of Logical, one of your recent investments, and he wanted to know, how do you view SaaS pricing models? And more specifically, your thoughts on the perceived move away from maybe the traditional per seat model? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you just look at within my own portfolio or within NEA's latest portfolio, the per seat model is probably in the minority than in the majority. Customers are wanting to buy software in a way that aligns with their business. And as vendors and as companies and as startups, I think it really behooves us to to move in a pricing model that aligns with how the customer perceives value. And so you've got software companies that are pricing based on the amount of data. So they price per gig. You've got other SaaS companies that if you're in analytics, especially that price based on events, right? The more events you track, that's how pricing works here. You've got other infrastructure companies that price on the number of servers you run the software on. Or even I've seen folks run it at even more granular level, like price on the amount of memory that you use, for example. These are all great ways to price primarily because one, there are a couple things that are important, right? Number one, you want to align with how your customers perceive value. And two, you want to encourage broader usage of your product. You don't ever want to introduce pricing and have the customer not be incentivized to use more of it because ultimately for your business, and you take a step back and you're like, obviously we would never do that. But when you're in the weeds and you've said, I'm going to just price proceed and that's just the way I'm going to do it, you can miss that larger picture of does this really align with how my customer perceives value? And so these are discussions that are happening in board meetings today. And I think that there is a, a lot of companies realizing that there's a better customer alignment if they move away from this per seat model. No, absolutely. I, I do agree with you. But we spoke about the incredible growth of the open source market there, which leads me to maybe a much more macro discussion on market sizing itself. And the common prevailing investor wisdom is it has to be that massive multi-billion dollar market. I'm intrigued. How would you respond to this statement on the, the VC demands of market size? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that, you know, we all want big markets and that's something that you learn. If there was ever a VC 101 handbook, I think I feel like it would say only invest in big markets. But I think there's also a mental trap here that you have to be very careful about, which is that very, very large markets could also mean very, very competitive markets, very, very hard markets to break into. And so what I really like to think about or encourage entrepreneurs to think about when we meet and talk about market size is great. You've identified some market, but what is the actual market size you're going after with your initial use case, right? Let's focus on that. And I think that for me, it's not so much about there being some multi-billion dollar big addressable market. It's about what is the differentiation of your product versus what's there today? And is this product going to allow you to build momentum such that you can attract spend from multiple markets into your product, right? If you've got a great platform, and I think you can see in really large SaaS companies, right? Like Salesforce is 
is like a big example where they've built this incredible platform that they've actually started to take on way more markets than the core CRM market. Uh, and so I think that's what I, I like to have that conversation with entrepreneurs is like, what's the specific market that you're going after with your initial use case? Forget the, the broader market. And what kind of solution are you building? And does it attract more spend over time? Can I jump in and ask, what can founders do then when speaking to you and when yeah. kind of trying to articulate that granularity towards their market size and the kind of niche market that they're really attacking? But then how can they yeah. do that focus while also satiating that appetite for the big market? Is it through vision and projection? What, what's it to you? Yeah, it's a little bit of a vision and projection for sure. But I think that more importantly, even at the prototyping stage of a startup, you can engage your end customers, right? And do customer interviews. And those customer interviews I've seen entrepreneurs present are so powerful because when the customers are talking about the promise of your product, you can start to see this market pull already in the very, very early stages of a, a startup. And to me, that's a great sign, right? I think that if you talk to a customer who says, yes, initial use case, no brainer, what you guys are thinking of building is way better than what I have access to. And if you guys do that really well, there are all these other things that would be great to bring onto this platform. So I think that's the real power of engaging customers early and sensing that market pull early. I think that's really important in these enterprise markets, which at the beginning may seem to be small, but over time end up becoming very, very large. Can I ask, how would you respond to the statement that it doesn't mean anything until they've paid for it? Well, that would just go <laughs> against our entire open source thesis, right? I think a big part of the open source world and how you go to market in the open source market is that nobody pays for it for a, quite a while. And I think that I would just say there's a lot, the final signature where you're, where you're finally getting the customer to sign, that's quite a ways down the road of a development for an enterprise startup. And so there are a lot of signals that you can pick up well ahead of that. And of course, over time, you've got to get customers to pay you. And yes, it doesn't mean anything over time if they don't pay you. But it's a, it's a moment in time question, right? As you're beginning to start your company, I completely disagree with that statement. But if you're five years into that company, I would absolutely agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Before we dive into the quick fire there, how can we not touch on my favorite topic of all, which is fundraising? You've said before that if you have conviction and vision, you shouldn't be afraid to raise capital and bet big. If we unpack this a little further for me, does every founder not have conviction and vision in the early days? And how do you separate between the two? Yeah, and I think that's a great question, Harry. If you unpack it further, you can tell in the very initial pitch of how aggressive a founder wants to be, right? I think there are founders that show up that have a very specific viewpoint on a market and say like, hey, I'm going to build this set of products over the next three to five years. And if this works well, in parallel, I'm going to build a next set of features that are going to take this company for the next five years beyond that. That huge vision where you have this proprietary insight into a market and you're willing to say, this is going to cost a lot of money and it's going to require a team to go after it. But I have this very proprietary view of this market and understand it better than anybody else in the world. And I want to go for it. I think that's just a great pitch to hear from my perspective, because that shows a founder that is mentally very, very well 
prepared and has a view on the market that's completely differentiated from everybody else. They see an opening, they see an opportunity that's not apparent to the rest of us. And when you have a founder with that strong conviction and such an informed viewpoint, it's just a really fun ride to back somebody with that because from the initial days, you just dream really, really big and you go for it. I think that I contrast that with the incremental approach, which is building a set of features to satisfy a small set of requirements. And then after we solve that initial problem, we'll figure out what's next. I think that if entrepreneur has that proprietary viewpoint and that big vision of how to take an entire market space down, just go for it. So Chetan, you know, uh, I'm, I'm always brutally honest. If we go past that kind of conviction and vision, if there's a time where the metrics make sense and the numbers make sense, when's that right time to really pour fuel on the fire? When's the time to really kind of set the rockets on fire? Yeah, I think that that really breaks down into two segments, right? You have the ability to fund the product development part of your business and then the go-to-market side of the business. And of course, I'm talking exclusively about enterprise technology. The go-to-market side, of course, you're going to be wanting to pay a close attention to all the metrics that we previously spoke about. Customer acquisition costs, paybacks, sales efficiency. How long is it taking for my marketing and sales costs to become really effective? Are my customers expanding, et cetera? And when those metrics start to align, absolutely go all in. On the product side is where this is where I think entrepreneurial conviction and spirit is so important is oftentimes you're not going to have all that clear signal and metrics from a product perspective to bet big. And that's where the conviction comes into play. That's where this market insight comes into play to say, I just know this market better than anybody else in the world. And I see this opportunity and it's time to build this great product that's going to take some time. But when it comes out, it's just going to change the world. And that's really amazing. Go Can ahead. I ask what entrepreneur most uh, symbolizes that to you? Do you remember a meeting with one entrepreneur where they, they said, I, I know this better than anyone else. I know we can do this. We're ready. And was yeah, that I think, meeting? Yeah, I think that if you think about Elliot Horowitz at MongoDB, I think that his vision is just infectious. I mean, it's pretty brave to say that I'm going to build a better database company, knowing that building a, a database company is a, is a long journey. And his vision and his ambition is, I think, truly unique and, and actually very inspirational. And so I see someone like Elliot who you know has had a backing of, of great venture capitalists, including us, but his vision and his ability to articulate that roadmap is amazing. And you know the team that, that is at MongoDB, Dave, who's the CEO, Michael, who's the CFO, they've just got a great team that understands how to build not only a great business, but also they understand this roadmap and where it makes sense to bet big and win. And so it's just awesome to be part of journeys like that. No, absolutely. It must be very special. But speaking about betting big, we're going to bet big with the quick fire round now. So yeah, I please. say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. Are you ready? Ready. So you recently invested in a legal space with Logical. What other untapped areas excite you? That one was from Andy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the whole industrial space is super exciting at the moment. I think that there are tons of opportunities in manufacturing, in processing, in insurance. So there are all these huge industries that haven't yet been addressed by software innovation that are available that I think are, are very, very exciting. Tell me a moment in your life that serves as an inflection point and changes the way you think. I think just being around great investors, I think 
count my mentors here at NEA, folks like Scott Sandell, folks like Harry Weller was no longer with us, Ravi, John, Tony, all the great general partners that I that I served with here at NEA. Just at the early days of being here, watching them in boardrooms, seeing how they conduct themselves and how they give advice to founders, that was a huge inflection point for me personally. And I think that's just been an amazing experience. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? Rainy day, what do you sit down to? You know, this isn't specific to SaaS, but I'm a huge sucker for Good to Great by Jim Collins. I think that this this is just a, a great read. And I know that some of the use cases are no longer relevant, but the underlying principles of do you have the right team? Are you thinking about your flywheel, or the flywheel of success properly? I think these are all principles that you can build on. So it's a, it's a great book to continue to come back to for me. No, I couldn't agree with you more. It's one of my favorites. But let's do the final one, which is what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your time in VC, starting out with NEA? This is pretty obvious, but I don't think I appreciate it as much, which is that patience is really, really critical for this business. You know, you have your highs and you have your lows, but I think that ability to, to just stay calm and patient and continue to execute is so important because I've had companies that have had three or four straight disaster quarters and the following eight have been amazing. And the inverse has been true too. And so patience and just playing the, the long-term vision out is so critically important in this business that I don't think that I, I quite appreciated it when I first got started. Well, Chathan, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. As I said, I heard such great things from Andy at Law School, Ross at MuleSoft. So thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. So fantastic to have Chathan on the show there. And fun fact, our first ever guest from NEA. If you'd like to see more from Chathan, you can follow him on Twitter at Chathan P. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can follow us on Instagram at hdebbings1996. That's hdebbings with two Bs, 1996. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, let me tell you about Full Contact, the largest cloud-based identity resolution and insights platform for professionals, teams, and businesses who want to master their contacts and create authentic connections, allowing you to merge contact information across your address books into a single source of truth while automatically identifying and merging duplicate contacts. They also keep all your contacts up to date with public data, including photos, jobs, and social profiles, and keep them organized, synchronized, and up-to-date and safe. Able to scan business cards and automatically capture signatures from Gmail. These and many more features have made Full Contact an essential app for people-focused professionals, including many VCs. And to download this app, simply check out Full Contact on the Apple App Store, Google Play Store, or online at fullcontact.com. And speaking of awesome products you need in your life, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce to you another very cool player in SaaS, Zoho. Now, Zoho is the platform that offers you a wide range of productivity tools and applications for businesses, with tools for sales and marketing, finance, email and collaboration, and more. It's become the operating system for more than 25 million small businesses around the world, and you can learn more at zoho.com. And to learn how you can grow your your revenue with integrated payments, just like Zoho did. Visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta, and WePay's got this really smart cheat sheet on how to get started and scaling with platform payments. Get it at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. Now, as always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode with John Lee, co-founder and CEO at ProsperWorks.